This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. What's the connection between education and climate change? My guest today, Arian Walls, takes a critical take on sustainability, yet offers a hopeful outlook. In our conversation, Arian details a few examples of school-level practices that could be seen as working towards a sustainable future, while also critiques educational competition and the hidden curriculum of commodification. I think education should also make people aware of this hidden curriculum of consumerism, the hidden curriculum of individualism, and that is pushing us, I think, in the end towards extinction. He ultimately calls for more dissonance in education systems as a way to learn new forms of sustainability to combat climate change. We need to slow down. We need to have a sense of community, sense of place. If we do not care about people and planet, then who will take care of people and planet in the end? Arian Walls is the UNESCO Chair of Social Learning and Sustainable Development and Professor of Transformative Learning for Socio- Ecological Sustainability at Wageningen University in the Netherlands. I spoke with Professor Walls at the 2018 Global Education Meeting, which was a high-level forum held in Brussels in early December that reviewed the progress towards the Sustainable Development Goals. Arian Walls, welcome to Fresh Ed. Pleasure to be here. I have just watched you and listened to you give a, a lecture uh, at the global education meeting here in Brussels. We're sitting here in Brussels, and I wanted to just ask and begin our conversation by asking how climate change is included in the Sustainable Development Goals. Well, it's one of the 17 goals, and it's number 13, I believe, and it's, it's I think it's framed as climate action. So it is seen as a critical sustainability issue, maybe one of the most important ones, although the tricky thing about the sustainable development goals that they it, they could become competition between them, you know. So so there's there's life uh, below water, there's life on land, there's uh, gender equality, there's uh, no poverty, there's lots of uh, these goals that are all you know important and critical. My and I think in comparison to the Millennium Development Goals, which were preceding. Um, the sustainable development goals, they're more concrete and they're not just focusing on the global south, they're as much focusing on the global north, which I think is important. So climate action is, is, is seen as the most, one of the most, I should say, uh, important uh, challenges of the coming 20, 30, 40 years. And so it's part of the agenda 2030 that the United Nations has formulated. So, okay, so developed and developing countries that are part of this, the global goals, sustainable development goals, they've pledged to achieve target 13 or, or goal 13. What are the targets? Well, the targets are, um, there, there are many indicators for these. Uh, there are like 169 or so indicators. And there are lots of people preoccupied with not just coming up with indicators, but also trying finding ways to measure whether we are achieving them. And they're used to, to compare and rank uh, countries in terms of how successful they are in achieving them. So, you know, there's, there's the, the COP, the, the Convention of Parties on, on Climate Change. A different, we have had different COP meetings 
And the pairs one is probably the one that is used referred to the most, eh, where we must uh, slow down global warming to 2.2 degrees Celsius, preferably 1.5 degrees Celsius. So if you ask me, so that is one of the aims, of course, uh, to, to reduce global warming. But if you, I, I, I'm not an expert on the targets and the impact. I would argue that there can be a trap of focusing too much on, on indicators and, and ignoring the, maybe the values and the, um, the engagement of citizens in these types of issues. So the larger issue of climate change and its connection to education, how do you see that? Well, I think we need to ask a serious question, uh, and that is, what is our education strengthening in society, and what is it maybe silencing or weakening? So when we talk about sustainable development, we need to ask the question, what is it that we are sustaining through our education, and what is it that we are maybe, what we need to disrupt uh, through our education? So sustain, sustainability is as much about sustaining things that are healthy as it is to disrupt things that are unhealthy. So if you look at education, we need to see, is education there to, to develop human beings, to uh, serve people and planet, to learn to live within ecological boundaries in a, in a good and fair and equitable way so that everybody can not just survive, but thrive? Does it create possibilities for that? Or is education, has it become an extension of, of, of the economy? Is it just preparing people to, uh, and I say just, because I think that's not the whole focus of education, but is it at the moment not just preparing people for a lifelong of working? Nobody questions that education should develop competencies that make them entrepreneurial, uh, that make them critical, that make them creative, them adaptive, uh, that make them empowered. Uh, these are all positive outcomes of education. But we also need to ask, what do people do with those capacities and qualities? Is it there? Is it to, to be competitive, to be successful as an individual, to profile yourself in a very competitive world and to excel and to, to uh, take care of yourself, maybe of your family? So the question of values, what kinds of values is our education uh, strengthening? Is it the value of solidarity, of community? of care, of thinking about future generations, about connecting with other species, or is our education strengthening values like individualism, consumerism, competition, uh, which are kind of neoliberal values that are in a, in a competitive capitalist economy, very useful values, but they're not helping us live more lightly on the earth, and they're not helping us uh, considering other generations and considering the future of the earth. So the main challenge is at the moment, how can we reorient education towards people and planet? And that I think is the challenge of educators today. And since it's been three years since the sustainable development goals have been adopted, how would you assess the state of sustainable education or education for sustainable development? Is it doing this teaching and educating a particular value set that is about care and community rather than a value set of individualism and competition? What's your assessment of the current state? Well, I think, uh, you know, of course, every country is, a, is different in this respect. And uh, the sustainable development goals resonate better in some countries than in others. 
and and to me uh, sometimes a, a top-down UN-based approach can work well in, in in countries where education policy is is influenced by those goals and where there is a mechanism for for adapting the curricula to these kinds of goals. But if those mechanisms are not there, or if sustainable development is is not doesn't resonate with people, then they won't have a lot of traction. So you'll see a, it's a mixed bag in that sense. If I look at the Netherlands, for instance, I see that the SDGs are inspiring companies, uh, but also schools, to to rethink the curriculum. And not just the curriculum, to rethink the way teaching and learning is organized. And maybe I'm too optimistic, but I do see eco-schools as a, you know, the eco-schools network, uh, which is a worldwide network of schools trying to engage with sustainability and environmental issues in a holistic way. They are, are really trying to uh, get a more localized curriculum where that is not driven so much by disciplinary questions from the different subject areas, but it's driven by the, the existential question that, that people are challenged by in their everyday lives. It's it's really driven by local community issues. It, whether this is about trying to uh, switch from fossil fuels to alternative energy sources to make communities less dependent on fossil fuels, or whether it's towards localized food systems, having healthier food in the canteen, having edible school gardens, or whether it is working closely with local entrepreneurs and teaching skills about how to fix bikes. For instance, a lot of young people in the Netherlands, they don't know how to fix their bikes anymore, which we, when we grew up, that was part of our education. Huh? Usually taught by our parents would teach how to fix your flat tire or to, to, to repair your chain or to put some oil on. And all these things, we, a lot of people learned when they were young. Young people today don't know how to do that anymore. So they, they easily have others do it, their, their parents, or they actually have their bike repaired by the local bike store. But rather than having that, uh, you can invite local the local bike store to come to the school and do workshops on how to repair your bike, or to work with local restaurants in creating meals out of the, the, the vegetables grown in the school garden, having a community meal where you invite different people, the community, also those who are, are usually not invited make it more inclusive and to connect the school with the community. This kind of living curriculum around these types of issues where sustainability comes in naturally, we may not even need that word sustainable. We're talking about good education that is relevant, that is responsive, that is responsible, that is reimaginative, and that it invites people to think about alternatives, about the future. It's creative and envisioning alternative futures. And then teachers have the challenge, how do I link biology to this? How do I link mathematics to this? How do I link language, language arts to this? So it's it's not driven by the subjects, but the, the subjects still matter in this type of learning. It all sounds very excellent, and I'm sure there are individual examples around the world where this can be found inside schools. But I wonder, it, like, will that be enough to counter the, the sort of dire warning that the, the intergovernmental climate panel report has has come out and said that you know in 2040 things are going to be very different unless we make drastic changes and this you know it used to be hundreds of years away now it's in a couple of decades so you know i just wonder if you know the schools the the education for sustainable development inside schools 
is certainly needed, but it almost seems like the focus needs to be on educating adults who are the ones that are contributing so vastly for their climate change. I think it's important to to acknowledge that we you know that education cannot fix everything, and it would be wrong to dump all society's ills on our schools to fix them. That would you know that that would be overwhelming and unfair. So I don't. We must recognize there's a whole basket of tools and instruments available to make societies change, varying from legislation, laws, uh, financial incentives, subsidies, technologies. Education is one important component of this, but a much deeper component. You know, in some ways you can compare education with climate change. It's a very slow process, but it has huge impact. And this is true for education, too. The, the kind of uh, values that we embed in our education have a huge impact on the kind of world that we are creating. So if you can, can develop alternative values, values that I was just talking about, if you can bring in those values, not as a, as a result of some kind of indoctrination where we start uh, programming children to act in a certain way, which I, incidentally, which I think our education is doing at the moment, because sometimes people say, well, it's very normative and, and sustainability that's pushing a certain agenda. And I say, yes, it is pushing a certain agenda. It's the agenda of the earth. It's the agenda of surviving. It's the agenda of caring for each other. It's, a, it's the agenda of caring for future generations, for other species. That is an agenda that is normative. And, and if you disagree with that, if your belief is you should take only uh, care of yourself and everybody for him or herself and the future generations, they'll have their issues. My parents' generation, they had the Cold War to deal with and they dealt with it. My generation has now climate change and my children will probably have that too. And future generations, they'll have something else. They take care of it themselves. So that's the me kind of me 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 kind of attitude, and a lot, there are people who believe in that, and they will not, you know, they won't think much of sustainability, I think. But if you think that we have a responsibility, a moral responsibility for the earth and for future generations, then you need to ask the question whether our education can, and it's a slow, deep learning process, can start embracing those kinds of values. And recognizing that the current values that are embedded in education, and we often don't realize, it's the hidden curriculum of consumerism that is very strong. It's the hidden curriculum of exclusion and a privilege and entitlement that is very strong in many parts of the world. And then there are those living in, in the slums of India with hardly any education, but a lot. They know a lot because they have to survive under tough conditions and they have very low ecological footprints, not by choice, but by force. They've learned to live with a very low ecological footprint, which, you know, we could say, is that acceptable or not? And as David Orr says, the people who have the biggest ecological footprints are the ones who have master's degrees, bachelor's degrees and PhDs. The more education we have in our current system doesn't mean that we take wiser decisions. And there's a lot of hypocrisy in this world, too, where, where we talk about it a lot. And, and then we go to our next meeting, talk about it some more. The gap between thinking and doing it is a problem. And I think to live in, in accordance to our values uh, or to, to develop new values and to just live in accordance to those values is, is quite challenging. You mentioned that the hidden curriculum of consumerism. and it seems that you're actually getting at 
of the issue of the economic system in which we live, where growth is valued, you know, on top of everything. And, and we measure the GDP of countries to, to see how well we're doing. And we think that to get out of poverty, one needs to have a certain level of income to satisfy his or her wants and desires. And of course, that system of capitalism uses and is based on what Karl Marx called the free gifts of nature. You, you extract all sorts of resources to turn them into commodities to be bought and sold. And you measure growth each year as, as success. As long as it's getting higher, you won't go in a recession, for instance. And it seems contradictory because the Sustainable Development Goals have SDG number eight is about economic growth. And so it just, it seems to be that that value of understanding the hidden, hidden curriculum of consumerism is very difficult for people to get their head around to see how the very process of buying more things in the world and having capitalism as sort of the assumed normal way of life or of economy is actually contributing to the climate changing drastically that we also say we want to solve. So to me, it just seems very contradictory. There is definitely this growth fetishism, this addiction to growth and expansion that you know has been challenged already in 1972, I think, the Club of Rome, limits to growth. And that is not a popular message in in world of conventional business. And I say conventional business because there are uh, new business models arising that are much more about the dynamic equilibrium where there are times of growth and times of, of contraction and uh, where they talk about sustainable growth and they talk about sustainable contraction, doing more with less, uh, which is equally important. But you're right. I mean, that CG8 has, I think it's uh, decent work and economic growth. You know, I ask, you have to be critical about that. You know, the, the SDGs are in some ways also problematic. No poverty, everybody agrees. No extreme wealth, you know, you probably get a lot of opposition. But that may be more effective in reducing poverty if you would have that as a goal. But it's not. The growth question, why not decent work and a, and a circular economy? Huh? Where, mm -hmm. where we actually have a cradle to cradle. Mm. Where there's no, where there's zero waste, and where we're not maximizing profit but maximizing meaning. Now that would be interesting, and that would really lead us away from trying to optimize system that, in its core, I think is unsustainable. It's driven by growth and expansion and extraction, as you were mentioning, to a transition to a system that is based on different principles and values. That is much more about equity, equilibrium, living within planetary boundaries more about community building and getting enjoyment in life, not uh, uh, by being fixed to the screen or having being detached from place and community, uh, but connected to electronics and gimmicks and fast-moving things where we can no longer really think and just be bored on the couch. I think every child has the right to be bored on the couch, to just have deep thoughts. Or to just look out of a window in a train and to see the landscape glide by. Who's doing that nowadays? Hardly anyone. Everybody's on their devices, continuously distracted. And when they're not on their device, they're thinking about what, what didn't I check? What did I miss? So this is a, a real problem. We need to slow down. We need to have a sense of community, sense of place. If we do not care about people and planet, then who will take care of people and planet in the end? 
And this is a, a risk. So I think the SDGs themselves, we need to also rethink them. Even the notion of sustainable development, you could say, well, do we need to sustain development? Maybe development is a problem, continuous development. So we should start critiquing the notion of continuous development. And I think there's a point. Lots of communities or groups in, say, Latin America, you have the Bien Vivir movement that is really questioning this notion of continuous development. And they're thinking about not uh, objectifying the world and seeing things as commodities that we can, can kind of trade and extract, but having a more relational ontology, yeah, just being with the world, uh, connecting with the things and the species around us in a more meaningful way. This seems far away from, from where we are right now in this room in Brussels with technology around us somewhere in the basement. But that type of world, if we can recreate that through tiny forests in cities, for instance, with the whole movement, or through urban agriculture, or there's movements towards veganism, for instance, people wanting to eat less meat, people beginning to get a little bit allergic to big companies taking over all the cookies that we accept every day, where we give away who we are and, and where our futures are being predetermined in a way by right. accepting these cookies. That is a scary future, I think, although some people get really excited about that future. But that's not my world that I would like to live in. And I think education should also make people aware of this hidden curriculum of consumerism, the hidden curriculum of individualism that is pushing us, I think, in the end towards extinction and cannot optimize this current system. I think we need to transition away from it. And it's not it's not no longer about doing the things we do, but only better. It's about doing better things altogether. It almost seems like what you're saying is that UNESCO and the Sustainable Development Goals, they themselves need to learn. They themselves need to be educated in a completely new way to think about climate change and sustainability. And I think that is happening also in UNESCO. You see the language is shifting a little bit. If you look at the global education monitor reports, the one that I contributed to in 2016, it's education for people and planet, creating sustainable futures for all. There you see some critique of this idea of more education will lead, uh, will always be good. It will lead to economic growth, which is always good. There's now questions about, well, it's not any education that's good. And economic growth is not always good. It could be problematic. And, and alternative indigenous views are important and we need to rethink the economy. There's a critical voice arising and it's not just about adapting to change all the time. We hear this a lot, eh? adaptive capacity building. We need to also start thinking about disruptive capacity building. And with that, I mean, we need to sometimes go against the grain. And I'm not saying that we need to, you know, it's not about civil disobedience necessarily. It's about asking tough questions, um, making ordinary less ordinary. It's about, you know, there are some places in, in, in the U.S. even where, you know, climate change is not really entering the classrooms. You're not supposed to talk about it. So disruptive capacity is that child asking the teacher, raising his hand, saying, but how about climate change? That is an act of disruption where conversations come in. And I think that's very important that we continue to have the space to also ask difficult questions and to disturb maybe the routines and systems and structures that make living unsustainable lifestyles easy and living sustainable lifestyles 
are. I think that's happening now in Australia. The students are protesting, saying, we want to talk more about climate change. We want climate change in our curriculum. But it's the government that's sort of saying no and resisting. And so in a way, the what I read from that is that it's actually the students who can, through disruption or civil disobedience, whatever it is, through protest, they can actually force education onto the adults who, who are the ones that are stuck in place, it seems like. Of course, there's an element of, of, of generational unfairness with, mm. with all this climate change crisis. The, you know, the people who are youngest uh, today, they have to live in this world the longest. And so uh, in the Netherlands, too, there were 38 youth organizations who, who petitioned the government to, to, to do more uh, about sustainability-related issues, whether this is nanoplastics and plastic plastification of the world and toxification of, of oceans and our bodies even, and soil, or air quality, but certainly also climate change and loss of biodiversity. They were saying, we need, we're not being prepared for the future that's coming. And that's unfair because you, you know, you, you may live 20, 30, 40 more years and you'll probably be okay, but we will be stuck mm-hmm. in this world. And if our schools don't prepare us and our universities don't prepare us and we remain on the trajectory of, of finding a job, uh, you know, contributing to the economy and buying consumer goods, that's not going to bring us any future. So it was the young people, young generations that actually, and it led to change. It led to the government saying, okay, uh, we must do better. And there's a whole kind of curriculum innovation mm-hmm. going on right now where sustainability is one of the, along with health and technology, three mm-hmm. pillars mm-hmm. of the new curriculum. Yeah. So this is, uh, this idea of transgressive learning and disruptive capacity building, I think is, is an important part of, of learning for sustainability. The UN climate report has estimates that go to 2100. And that may seem like so far away, but really a child being born today is going to be just about 80 years old in 2100. So, you know, we're the the generation that will be living will be the older generation when those predictions are supposed to come true. You know, are are go are present among us now, right? We're living among, you know, potentially the last generation of humans. So the question I have is: in your talk earlier today, you said you're a glass half full kind of guy, and I want us to ask: how is that possible, given all everything we know about climate change? Yeah, how to remain optimistic in times of climate change that is a is a is a challenge but without optimism uh, i think things will go faster <laughs> so there's a need for 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 hope and optimism uh, and that's why i think it's dangerous if education just focuses on on how serious things are and how complex things are and how rigged society is and that we're all doomed because that's not going to save the earth it's going to just accelerate the whole process so i'm i'm looking for for hope and energy in, in counter movements uh, many of them led by youth um, and and a lot of schools and universities there's lots of social movements too uh, there's people uh, self-organizing having a sharing of goods and services is becoming more popular the sharing economy uh, the cradle-to-cradle circular economy where we have no waste and we, 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 it's no longer about 
recycling things. It's really about closing cycles, which is new. And that uh, that is, I think, an important movement. It's also independent school movements that want to be not uh, uh, create schools where, where you can have more autonomy, where, teacher, where pe- teachers are trusted as, as, as humans who have the capacity to do something and they can make good choices. So they are not reduced to, to be focusing on, on, on preparing kids for tests and where they are always held accountable and there's this culture of accountability, but really a culture of learning, of reflexivity with that localized curriculum I was talking about. Energy, off-the-grid energy uh, movements, localized food movements. These are, and these are social, uh, ecological movements that in some parts of the world are, are creating very desirable neighborhoods and communities where people actually want to move to and they want to live, which can lead to eco-gentrification, which is a, another issue where it becomes so desirable that only the ones who can afford it can be a part of it. So there's a, we have to be careful that it's not becoming that. You don't want to create new bubbles. There are already plenty of bubbles. So, and that's the other thing we need to think, uh, you know, more about dialogue and, and connecting and preaching and bonding rather than creating these, these polarized bubbles that don't interact anymore, of which we see a lot. So it's also about utilizing diversity and sustainability and, um, and developing social cohesion and uh, so that people who are different uh, will, are willing to, to listen and, and, and have uh, trust and commitment together. Uh, even though you may disagree, because uh, most changes in, in, and that's education, there's no change if we are only exposed to those who think the same way as we do. But we, we do get challenged when we hear and listen to people who have something to say that doesn't immediately connect. It's the dissonance that leads to learning. So we need to create dissonance in a way that it, it just is outside of that comfort zone so that people want to engage and that they're not, it's not too far out of their comfort zone, because then they, you will lose them. But if it remains within their comfort zone, they're not learning either. So it's a real challenge to, to find that, that sweet spot where people are willing to engage with a new way of thinking and acting. Well, I'd like to say that we should have an SDG number 18, and that's dissonance for all. Arjen Walls, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. It really was a pleasure of talking today. Pleasure to be here. Arian Walls is a professor at Wageningen University. Today's episode of Fresh Ed was made possible through the support of the Graduate School of Education at the University of Tokyo and Education International. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed is made possible through listener donations. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash support. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, and Lushik Waba. An original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Priming. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.